Hello, and welcome to the 35th Pensions Lawcast. I'm Maria Rodier, a partner in the CMS Pensions team, and joining me today are Senior Associate Alison Guy and Associate Sheikh Sibaluk. And we're going to be discussing the new changes to the transfers regime, which took effect on and from 30th of November this year. Before we look at the new changes, it's probably worth a quick reminder of why we are here. In recent years, the pensions industry has seen a large increase in pensions liberation scams. That is, actions by scammers to persuade pension savers to transfer their pension savings to a liberation vehicle, with promises that are often just too good to be true. The money is then often invested in high risk or high fee investments, or simply just stolen. The pensions regulator has put a lot of emphasis on cracking down on pension scams in recent years. However, the legislative regime was such that where a member had a statutory right to transfer, trustees had no real power to stop it, even where they suspected the transfer was to a scam arrangement. However, as part of the new Pension Schemes Act 2021, new legislation has been introduced to give trustees more power to block or pause a transfer where they have serious concerns about where the money is headed. The new process is based on the trustees' consideration of specified risk factors, including where the transfer is being made to, if there is any clear reason or link for the transfer, and a specified list of red and amber flags to be considered during due diligence. While this new legislation has been welcomed in some parts, it does place a greater burden on trustees and administrators to carry out that due diligence and assess the nature of a requested transfer. So to sit alongside the transfer regulations, the pensions regulator has issued guidance and a due diligence checklist for trustees and administrators. It's also worth noting that, although the legislation only applies to statutory transfers, the pensions regulator has made it clear that it expects trustees to go through a similar due diligence process for non-statutory requests from 30th of November. In addition, any statutory or non-statutory requests received before 30th of November will still be required to be processed under the old regime. So for a short time, trustees and administrators will have to operate dual processes. Okay, so now I'm going to hand over to Shakes, who will explain a little more about the first and second transfer conditions. Thank you very much, Maria. Let's start off with a high-level view of the new transfer regulations before going into more detail. As Maria mentioned, these came into effect for transfers on or after 30th November 2021. After receiving a request, the trustee must inform the member of the new conditions within a month. The trustee cannot approve a transfer unless one of the prescribed conditions is satisfied. More on that in a bit. If not, the trustee does not have to complete the transfer within the six-month window and must communicate the decision to the member within seven days. So what are the prescribed conditions? These are known as the first and second conditions. The first condition is for any transfer to a public service scheme, an authorised master trust, or a collective defined contribution, or CDC scheme. Here, a member cannot be required to provide evidence other than the details necessary to identify the correct receiving scheme. This presents a difficulty since the trustee or administrator must be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the receiving scheme is indeed a public service scheme authorised master trust or a CDC. It's likely the trustees will have to conduct their own due diligence here. Once the trustee has decided, they must send notice of their decision by no later than the date of the transfer to the receiving scheme. As for the second condition, this applies to all transfers where the first condition is not satisfied. Here the test is slightly different. The trustee or administrator must decide 
On the balance of probabilities that no red or amber flag is present, which Ali will discuss more in a bit, and that the second condition is satisfied. The trustee's approach to satisfying the second condition depends on asking the member for evidence. We split the types of evidence into three categories, employment link, residency link, or information obtained elsewhere. Starting with employment link, the trustee administrator must ask the member for evidence that the member's employer is the sponsoring employer of the receiving scheme, the member has worked for the employer for a minimum of three months, their employment meets the minimum salary requirements, and finally, that the sponsoring employer has made contributions to the scheme. These can all be demonstrated by way of a letter from the employer. These were required for transfers to an occupational pension scheme. The second type of evidence is a residency link. TPR takes residency to mean residency in a financial jurisdiction, which means the member must be located in the same financial jurisdiction as the pension scheme. Residency can be demonstrated by way of resident visa, citizenship, even local utility bills. This is only required for transfers to an overseas pension scheme. Finally, the, the trustee may proceed based on information provided elsewhere by the member, evidence or information obtained by the trustee or administrator from the transferring scheme, or in the course of their duties to other schemes. This enables trustees and administrators to maintain a clean list. If the trustees and administrators do not possess this knowledge, then they may request evidence from the members. Trustees can only use this process for transfers neither to an occupation pension scheme nor for schemes located abroad. For any transfer under the second condition, the trustee or manager must decide, on the must decide on the balance of probabilities whether there are any amber or red flags present. If the member has not provided information, then this is a red flag. The trustee must provide two notices, one month apart, before the final red flag is applied. Any incomplete or dubious information, or if it's provided by a third party, is an amber flag. I'll now pass over to Ali, who will discuss these in greater depth. Thanks very much, Shakes. So now I'm going to talk in a bit more detail about the red and amber flags. Firstly, if trustees have evidence that a red flag exists, they cannot make a statutory transfer. Where there is an amber flag, a transfer cannot proceed unless the member has taken money helper guidance on pension scams and given evidence of that to the trustees. So let's look first at the six red flags. The first red flag is that the member has failed to provide a substantive response to a request in relation to the second condition. Substantive response here means a response which provides at least part of the evidence or information requested. So if a member provides no information or an incoherent or irrelevant response, that's a red flag. But if the member attempts to answer the questions, we moved into amber flag territory instead. Red flag number two is that the member has not provided evidence of receiving money helper guidance within a reasonable period. So this applies where there has been an amber flag already and the member has to go and get money helper guidance before the transfer can go ahead. It's a red flag if the member does not subsequently come back with that evidence. The regulator's guidance refers to giving members a reasonable period to do that, and it's going to be quite tricky for trustees to work out exactly what that means, given the process the member needs to go through, so we'll all need to watch this space. Red flag number three is that someone carried out a regulated activity for the member in relation to the transfer without the right regulatory status. Broadly, this will mean advice about where to invest the pension or pension transfer advice. Ultimately, the regulator says that this is a FISMA matter and trustees may need to take their own regulatory advice on that. Red flag number four is that the member requested a transfer further to unsolicited contact for the purposes of direct marketing. 
This definition links in directly with the pensions cold calling regulations, which came into force a couple of years ago. So it's a red flag if there is unsolicited, unlawful contact, which is very wide and could include contact in person, calling or social media contact. Red flag number five is that the member has been offered an incentive to make the transfer. Again, incentive is really widely drafted and could include a free pension review, offers of cashback or accessing money before minimum, minimum pension age. One big difference from the draft regulations is that we now have a clear carve out for trustee or employer led incentive exercises, which won't be a red flag. So that is helpful. Red flag number six is that the member has been pressured or felt pressured to complete the transfer. So even if the member wasn't actually pressured, but simply felt pressured, that will be a red flag. Some examples of pressure might be sending a courier to wait outside while the member signs paperwork, or it could be repeatedly calling, texting or emailing. So those are the six red flags, and in most cases, it should be possible to tell whether or not a red flag exists. If we turn now to the amber flags, these make things much harder for trustees because they retain more of the subjectivity that was a concern when the changes were first proposed six months ago. So there are seven amber flags. The first amber flag is that the member has provided a substantive response, but the response is incomplete. So perhaps the member just hasn't given all the necessary information. The second amber flag is that the member has supplied the requested evidence, but it doesn't demonstrate the employment or residency link that Sheikhs mentioned just now, or the evidence may not be genuine, or it may not have been provided directly from the member. The third amber flag is that high risk or unregulated investments are included in the receiving scheme. So now we're getting into the more difficult subjective tests. High risk investments means investments at the high end of the normal range of risk, and refers to the proportion of those investments being greater than in a normally balanced portfolio. The regulator says this is a question of reasonable judgment for trustees, and we anticipate that trustees will want some benchmarking advice here as to what exactly is normal. The fourth amber flag is that the receiving scheme is charging unclear or high fees. Again, the policy intent here makes sense, and fees are a known problem with pension scams. High fees are defined as fees that do not bear a reasonable relationship to the proposed benefits or that are at the high end or, or beyond the normal range of fees in the current market. So again, trustees are being asked here to exercise their judgment as to what is normal. Amber flag five is that the structure of investments included in the receiving scheme is unclear, complex or unorthodox. Unorthodox means uncommon within a normal portfolio of investments in the current financial market, where the legality may be in question. This raises the issue of whether trustees need legal sign off on the legality of the investment structure. Amber flag six is a real challenge. The regulations simply say overseas investments are included in the scheme. And this appears to be as wide as it sounds. So if the receiving scheme has any overseas investments in relation to any member, that is an automatic amber flag. The regulator has said that it's not concerned with the standard global equity funds, but rather with racier investments in lax regulatory environments. But it will be a difficult call for trustees whether to be cautious and send lots of members off to get money helper guidance where there appears to be no other concern or to take a more pragmatic view. We are expecting revised guidance from the Pension Scams Industry Group before Christmas, so this will certainly be one to watch. The final amber flag is that there has been a sharp or unusual rise in transfer requests involving the same scheme or advisor. 
This is intended to deal with cases where trustees suddenly get a cluster of transfer requests, perhaps where information is shared very widely on social media or between family and friends. One final thought on the red and amber flags. As anyone in the pensions industry knows, the devil is in the detail. And in this case, it's also in the sheer number of devilish definitions. Easy for you to say. There are 22 definitions just in relation to the red and amber flags. So trustees and their advisors will have to be really clear on exactly what those definitions say. Now I'll hand back to Maria to cover the practical issues that trustees need to be thinking about now that the transfers regime has come into force. Thanks, Ali. So what are the next steps for trustees? Well, these new requirements came out with very little notice for administrators to get ready. And given the deadline of 30th of November is a statutory one, there is very little leeway for schemes to take longer to get up to speed. For defined benefit transfers, trustees have up to three months to issue a statement of entitlement, so it does give some time. For defined contribution transfers, the whole transfer process has to take place within six months. However, the risk with DC transfers is that if a trustee takes too long to process a transfer, they can open themselves up to complaints where the member's fund has lost investment value during the transfer period. As such, the first thing trustees will need to do is make sure that they're aware of what their administrators are doing to implement the new regime and how quickly they're able to get up and running. Trustees will also want to check their administration contracts to ensure that they are drafted widely enough to cover the new regime and to check the trustees have the right delegations in place to allow decisions to be made, for example, in relation to red and amber flags, as Ali has just discussed, and of course, in relation to the ultimate decision to block a transfer. Finally, the trustees may want to consider member communications either a general note in an upcoming newsletter or communication, or more generally in their transfer packs. It's good practice to make members aware that they may now be asked to provide more information to allow the trustees to assess a transfer, and that this new regime can affect timings, or ultimately the member's ability to take a transfer at all. So thank you for joining us on today's CMS Pensions Lawcast. If you want any further information on transfers, please do see our updated Trustees Transfers Guide, which is available on our CMS website. This is the final Lawcast episode of 2021, but if you're interested in hearing more about the changes that have been brought about by the Pension Schemes Act 2021, please see our series of other Pension Schemes Act topics, uh, including topics such as the Pensions Regulators Revised Clearance Guidance and one on information sharing. Goodbye and we'll see you all in January 2022.